paloma y voló. Oh, oh, ay, marinero navegó. Hi everyone, my name is Leticia Peguero and thank you for joining me on Out of the Margins, where we're defining youth justice one podcast at a time. I'm the ED, the Executive Director of the Andrus Family Fund. At the Andrus Family Fund, we partner with organizations who impact the lives of young people, either through their direct service work, through policy and advocacy work, and definitely through community organizing all over the country. We're specifically interested in young people of color who are negatively impacted and affected by systems that we call disruptive systems, like the juvenile justice system, the foster care system, and yes, even the education system can sometimes be disruptive to young people of color in the United States. Through this podcast, we hope to shed some light on the issues we're working on and hear from our grantee partners on ways that they're creating a more just society for our country's young people. Folks, I'm here with Kim Kaup, um, who is the um, the chair of the Andrus Family Fund Board and has really been at the forefront of helping us uh, live our mission and live our values um, and fund some of the great folks that, that you'll be hearing from and out of the margin. So tell us a little bit about who you are. Yes, I love long walks on the beach <laughs> and red wine. Right on. I'm also single. Um <laughs> I am originally from West Palm Beach, Florida, where I was born and raised. I went to the University of Florida, uh, so I still root very loyally for my Gators, and had always um, looked up to my grandmother and aunts and uncles who were involved in various philanthropies, and my parents growing up in Florida, um, a lot of marine conservation, um, a lot of stuff with development and farming. The Everglades is a big one. Um, My family... Uh, my father and grandmother lived in Florida their whole lives, so, you know, kind of, uh, you never hear of somebody who's from Manhattan, usually. Mm-hmm. Everybody's a transplant. It's the same way in West Palm, so really in- connected to the environment, but as I got older and started to branch out in terms of the philanthropic endeavors that I became a part of, um, I had taken such an interest in the Andrews Family Fund. Uh, my grandmother had served on the Serdna board for a number of years, so I'd always kind of heard the name. Um, didn't realize that it was the uh, Andrus name spelled backwards. Um, so that was always a fun fact to, to thrill people with. Um, but I joined the board in 2008, so it's been a really fun last couple of years, lots of changes, but changes for the better. Yeah. So um, that's a little bit of, of how I got to this place. Yeah, yeah. So so what do you do for, for work? So, you know, one of the interesting things about the Andrus Family Fund Board is that um, until, and we'll talk about this a little bit more um, as we go along, but until fairly recently, it was just people that have been descendants and or spouses or partners of descendants of the original donor, John E. Andrus, right? So, um, and so folks, are like not like other boards that maybe have like some kind of professional expertise in the areas that we fund in, it really is an opportunity to learn about civic engagement and philanthropy 
Um, so what is your day? What, like, what do you do nine to five? What, what's that for you? Yeah, so I have no background <laughs> in philanthropy or nonprofit at all. Um, I am the karate kid, and Leticia <laughs> is my Miyagi, who I learn from constantly. Um, so I am an entrepreneur or a commander of chaos. Uh, I have an entertainment startup that I started five years ago, and we work with celebrities and brands and musicians to create really amazing packages that involve content. So that could be something like a tour book that you would see on the road with Madonna. That could be something like a really cool album packaging for Justin Bieber. Uh, It could kind of show up in a lot of different places, but that's what I've been doing mainly for the last five years. Um, But as I get more and more seeped into this space, the entrepreneurial bug of starting something with a social impact Mm. is is always kind of gnawing at me. So... Mm. Maybe that's something on the horizon. Yeah, yeah. And I have to, you know, give Kim a shout out. So she was on Shark Tank. <laughs> uh, so for those that may not know, um, yes. she was one of those people being grilled by, right, these folks that are interested either in investing or not investing in your business and really proud to say that they decided to invest. So <laughs> find her on Shark Tank. Um so let's talk a little about a little bit about AFF, right? So I came on three years ago, and um, it's really been um, like three years of trying to, um, you know, discover or rediscover rather our identity as a fund. What does it mean to be in leadership in in a fund that is really committed to young people, committed to social justice? How, how has how has that lived in your experience? But also, like, what does it mean to you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's exciting to not only do this work and have a leadership role, um, you know, working with young people, working around juvenile justice, vulnerable youth, um, but I think it's exciting to work with a team of collaborators and grantees who are so innovative, um, because I think that that's something that really we've worked hard in the last three or four years to kind of break out of the status quo of maybe what was traditionally done um, at the Andrews Family Fund, you know, 10, eight years ago, something like that. So it's been really interesting to kind of be at the forefront of these different processes, different ways of grant making, um, doing things like operational spending, doing things like leadership development that traditionally had never been done, not only at the Andrews Family Fund, but when you look at the landscape, it's not something Mm -hmm, that's done mm -hmm. in in a really uh, broad way. So Mm -hmm. I think the leadership role for me has also been such a blessing to dive into these Uh, different sectors, which really I think if I had been at another um, foundation, family or not, might not have been something that I would have been, you know, able to explore as thoroughly as I have here. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that you and I talk about all the time and our our team is this idea of um, democratizing philanthropy, right? Philanthropy inherently is unequal, right? There are like people who have money and there are people who don't have money and there are people who are asking for money and there are people that are giving out money. So how do you think about democratizing philanthropy? And I think you've talked about it a little bit, right, with leadership development. But, you know, are there other ways from your uh, 30,000-foot view that you can imagine, whether it's happening or not at the Andrews Family Fund, that we can think about philanthropy as a more... Um, equitable endeavor. Yeah, I think that, you know, for me, I automatically go to my 
my real life, my work life. Um, and that, you know, working in entertainment and working with celebrities and packages for fans, you know, I say to people all the time, I could meet with Justin Bieber and come up with a really great idea, but it's not until I get a fan in the room hmm. or I ask hmm. somebody, would you actually buy this? Um, whether it's a good idea or not, you know, I have lots of what I think are amazing, fabulous ideas, but once we ask that 13 year old girl if they would buy something like this from a uh, five seconds of summer or one direction and they say ew no that's so terrible uh, then the idea becomes not so good and I think the same thing uh, kind of applying that with a, a philanthropy lens is really interesting and something that I know we try to do quite a bit which is not come up with the ideas go to the grantees and say this is something that we think is really great but um, kind of bring them to the table and say what is something that you think is interesting do you think this idea is viable do you if not do you have a better idea and really make it more of a, a team vote as mm-hmm. opposed to mm-hmm. a um, you know coming from the top floor down yeah. to to the bottom yeah and I think that that's something that works uh, very well in the for-profit space, but in the non-profit space, sometimes can get a little lost in translation. So I think in the for-profit space, you know, you hear of companies doing it all the time, right? They're mm-hmm. polling people. It's obviously an election year. Mm-hmm. They're always trying to see where's the temperature, where's the mm-hmm. pulse, is this working, is this not? Um, you know, big companies like Johnson & Johnson spends millions of dollars mm-hmm. trying to get, you know, their right pampers, mm-hmm. diaper rash, <laughs> cream working for moms so you know why we're not doing more of that in the philanthropy space is really kind of beyond me because it it is the same method of you know is what we're doing even working and and do the consumers consumers being grantees Mm -hmm. actually like this use it or are they just saying oh no here come these people again yeah (laughs) I mean I think that's a really really great point this idea of end user right Mm -hmm. like what works and what doesn't and there's something I think really important that in what you said and I want to unpack it a little bit um, is that there is knowledge in the end user, right? So in the in your case, it's like the mom and the diaper rash or the te- the the thirteen year old girl in your business, right? That w- would she buy this? Is she interested? Like maybe we think it's super cool, and she's like, eh, like whatever. These old folks came up with this stuff, right? And I think sometimes in the nonprofit sector we, for whatever reason, lose that insight that there is knowledge in communities, Mm -hmm. right? And in people that have been impacted. So um, formerly incarcerated young people have knowledge that they can share with us about what works or what doesn't. So I just think it's really important to say that because somehow, to your point, it gets lost in translation. I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> yeah, it well it gets lost in translation and it's really how how are the decisions that we're making impacting things down the road. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can make a really great product for a thirteen year old that maybe he's going to buy it, maybe he's not. If she does buy it and just sits in her room under the bed, then like, was that really a great decision? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some things that when you really look at the end user, not just the end user, but the the process of how yeah, how it yeah. got there, it's, it's really important because at some point, you know, are you throwing bad money after good money? Yeah, that's a great, great point. What, what would social change look like for you? 
Yeah, that's a great question, and I think it's something that we've thought really heavily about. And and really, how are how are you looking at it from all facets of your life? So um, I know we we kind of make this joke with foundation work, but you know, you sit somewhere. Uh, for two days diving into these social issues and you then you take a black car to the airport you know mm-hmm. are you really living these values not mm-hmm. only in the boardroom and the decisions you make and um, the actions you take but all the way around you know do you have a 401k with your job great do you know what that 401k is invested mm-hmm. in could mm-hmm. it be invested in something a little bigger mm-hmm. or better um, I think that those are questions that really you have to start asking yourself not just what I call what are you doing nine to five so especially with the foundation you know yes from nine to five you're giving really great strong grantees some amazing um, funds and development and leadership aid but where is that money coming from Mm -hmm. and is it invested in Exxon or is it invested in a Nike sweatshop Um, Mm -hmm. not to say that Nike has sweatshops they (laughs) they banned those but you know are you are you just living nine to five or are you really doing all 24 hours of the day because Mm -hmm. in that case you really have to start looking at how your money is being invested how that rate of return is is getting into your pocket which then obviously trickles down to the grantees, but I think doing that not only as a institution, but as individuals. Mm -hmm. So it's something that I think has to infiltrate every part Mm -hmm. of you, um, right down to your 401k, which I know a lot of people, you know, my friends included, um, if I asked them, where is your 401k or what sort of funds is it in, they would shrug their shoulders and say, my employer does that. And I have no idea. It's just somewhere. Um, but you know, there are great, you know, Merrill Lynch does a lot of corporate stuff and they actually have entire social impact, um, programs for your 401k. Um, they have women specific ones and you don't need to have, um, I think the minimums on the, the female one specifically that I looked at was $10,000. So mm-hmm. you don't have to be some, you know, $100,000 401k huge, you know, you can start very, very small and, and preferably very, very young. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing this from the time you're 20, 21, not the time you're 50 and sitting mm-hmm. on a foundation board going, oh yeah, whoops, I mm-hmm. guess I should have been, uh, looking at this from a more sure. holistic approach. Yeah. So, you know, AFF was started as a as a next gen board, right? Which is um like super interesting in lots of ways, right? That this idea that how do you get younger folks? Um, so, you, but younger we mean between the ages of twenty five and forty five, and I can younger, to say younger. That's awesome. <laughs> that forty five is still considered next gen um, in some circles. Um, so, um, but this idea, right? That 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 we needed to get, or we I wasn't here at the time, but that the Surdna Foundation, our parent foundation, needed to get have a way, a mechanism via which folks that were younger parts of the family to get invested in philanthropy and civic engagement. So, so like, does, does that apply still? You know, like when you think mm-hmm. about, you know, all the stuff that people say about millennials and right, all the jargon that's thrown around, like, do you think it's been an important part of your development to have this opportunity as a next gener or whatever that means, right, to be introduced to this both philanthropy but also the work that we're doing with juvenile justice reform and foster care and young people. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely been 
invaluable in my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I've probably booked um, several uh, round trips on my credit card just from um, spending so much money on Amazon, giving out Brian Stevenson's <laughs> Just Mercy book. Right uh, I feel like I'm gifting that to everybody yes, left and yes. right. But I think part of it is, you know, you can look at the millennial generation and people say they're disengaged. People say that they're, you know, oh, they have the attention span of a gnat. If you don't catch them in 30 <laughs> seconds, they're moved on to something else. Um, which could be true and could not be true, but one of the things that is always true about millennials and you can find in any ad age or New York Times article is that they value word of mouth more than anything, Mm. which is why you see a lot of brands right now doing what they call branded content, which means instead of... um, you know, Sprite making a Sprite commercial, uh, LeBron James will happen to have in his Instagram post a Sprite can. So kind of more branded content as opposed to an in-your-face ad. And I think something that I have found, especially with the work we're doing, whether it's juvenile justice, you know, it, it I always joke with people, it's not the sexiest work. Uh, we're not giving clean water. Uh, we're not, uh, we don't have little sad children with like, right. you know, bugs in their eyes. Uh, people love dogs, the mm-hmm. PETA commercials. You know, we, it's not the like sexy, uh, you know, Sarah McLaughlin PETA commercial, mm-hmm. but it's work that once you tell people about it and once you kind of have that you know, person to person buy-in, it's really strong. And I've had several people now get super involved and listen to Adam Voss's TED Talk Mm -hmm. and get really passionate Mm -hmm. about what that work is. And I think the thing that's true about the millennial generation is telling them about philanthropy, telling them about the work that needs to be Mm -hmm. done, telling them about just values isn't going to work as much as a peer or someone saying Mm -hmm. to them, I saw this really great TED Talk. Wow, it takes 20 minutes. You should really watch it. Mm. That is way more powerful, not only, again, in a you know private sector, um, big company standpoint, but in philanthropy as well. I mean, mm. TED Talks included. Yeah. So, so messengers matter. Yeah, then, right? exactly. Um, we've put together this process, right, called Applied Purpose that we... Um, you know, we, we don't imagine that we're the only funder that's thinking about this. Um, that would be too grandiose a comment to make. But I think um, we have uh, really been thoughtful, um, and by we I mean all of us, right, the board and the staff, and thinking about how do we listen and how do we collaborate with our with our grantees. And you've spoken to that a little bit. And so I can talk about it from the staff perspective, but I'd love to hear from the board, like what, what does applied purpose mean to you? Like what, and something you said earlier, like it's both like the product, right? But it's also the process. And so this is our process of doing our work. So just love to hear a little bit. Yeah, um, I'm a huge fan, as you know, of analogies. I just feel like they get everybody on the same page and they really envision it. And for me, when I think about this process and I think about the way we do our work, um, what really comes to mind is like a train track. And you can put down a train track from A to B. Um, and put a train on those tracks and say, okay, that's it. I'm going to walk away. Like I've, I've created a traveling route between these two places. Um, and then you could come back a year later and what would probably happen? Well, the tracks would have been rusted. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe there would have been like, um, you know, some brush in the way or, you know, some other kind of 
wear and tear, things that are going on. You know, you can't just build the tracks and walk away. Um, there has to be maintenance. You're having to upkeep. You're having to upgrade. You're having to um, kind of change the parts. And I think philanthropy for me, when I think about it on a whole, is is the same way. You can't just dump a bunch of money and go, well, I fixed it. I got from point A to point B and I walked away. You know, it's really about being there every step of the way for every rusted nail, for every little wheel that went off the tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very literal example, but it really shows, you know, and anybody, that that example could apply to anything. Gardening, you can't just plant a seed and walk mm-hmm. away. It needs water. You need to mm-hmm. till it. It needs to mm-hmm. fertilize. All of that good stuff that you can't just... Um, there's always that uh, infomercial that's, I forget who it was, but it's that sort of set it and forget it. Um, <laughs> you cannot set it and forget it. Mm. Um, so I think that that's something that with our work is is always really something that's mm. very mindful, whether it's multi-year grants, mm. whether it is that leadership development, what are we doing to make sure that those tracks don't get rusted out and derailed? So I think, you know, I love this idea of you can't set it and forget it, right? Um, so, so that we're in it for the long haul with our grantees, our grantee partners, and and the lesson that we have to learn from them, right? That they that the answers live in communities and oftentimes live in people that are the end user or the um, the end beneficiaries, right? The folks that are consuming the services that are living through the experience of, of the issues that we care about. Um, so, you know, AFF recently voted on a really big change, which I think helps um, uh, both helps us live our values, right? But then also, I think um, it's pretty radical when it comes to family foundation boards. Um, and so I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, so... Um, I'll let you, I can say it, but I'll let you say it because I think it's super exciting um, and will really um, change the way that we engage in community work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it it was really exciting over the last couple of weeks to, to kind of realize a goal that has been in motion, I think, since 2009 at least. Um, of bringing on non-family board members. So obviously you alluded to it earlier, but we've had sort of quote-unquote non-family in terms of spouses, stepchildren, etc. But really bringing on people from the community, from our grantees, from the overall philanthropic landscape to not really come on as consultants or, or experts, but really as peers. Um, It's been an exciting decision. I think everybody on our board is really, really gung-ho about it um, in a positive way because, again, when you look at some of those more traditional foundation boards that may or may not have family involvement, um, they're older, right? It's people that, you know, from default, uh, if you're 50 years old, chances are you you have a wealth of knowledge. Um, But again, because we're a 25 to 45-year-old board, you know, if we can get somebody who's 25 who maybe is... um, working uh, with one of our grantee partners who could come on board and and be a peer with us as we learn and as we go forward with these grants. Um, What an amazing opportunity, not only for them, but for us. Um, So they're not, they're coming on as, um, 
as equals, which I think is really important not only in terms of, yes, the logistics, the voting, the this, the that, but really coming on as life equals. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, different stages of life. You're When you're 25, you're very different than when you're 45. Mm-hmm. And I think our board reflects that in a really great way. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be exciting. Yeah, yeah. I think... I think from a staff perspective, it's super exciting um, to be able to um, to see the change happen, right? And I think it's also to sort of your first point, like there's knowledge in communities, right? And so when we're um, when we're talking about the things that we talk about at our board meetings, the things that we talk about every day here at the staff, we're talking about organizing and we're talking about movement building and right all the jargon that on the progressive side we use um it's going to be wonderful to then say well we live our values right we believe in just opportunity um we believe in innovation and this is the way that we're that we're living those values so it's exciting stay tuned y'all to to get to hear like who joins us on this journey But, you know, you said you've been working on it since 2009. And so just I'm really curious, you know, you don't have to give us all all the board (laughs) secrets, but like what what has taken so long, right? Where was year are we in? It's 2016. Oh, my. And yet it's a process. Right. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what what was the thinking yeah, yeah, it's it's it. totally a process, and, you know, we like to keep it real here at AFF, so <laughs> I could give you a very PC answer, but, you know, again, it's, it's a lot of people in one room with a lot of different ideas about what a family foundation means, what a family board means. I mean, CERDNA, as well as uh, the Andrews Family Fund, a wealth of historical, you know, five generations, our family tree is huge, a hundred-year-old centennial coming up. I mean, it's it really is a kind of a a dynasty, like in these old soap operas. So, you know, there's a lot of different characters and thoughts that come to be when you have something that's that old, that has that many different generations involved. Um, So it's a process. You know, I tell people all the time, if you went to a really big corporation, there is a reason why Johnson and Johnson decides that they're going to launch a new product and it takes four years to get (laughs) FDA approval and to get this and to get that. You know, it's not as easy um, as for me. And and obviously in my personal life, I'm an entrepreneur. So I'm used to, you know, we make a decision and boom, 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 the decision is happening. Um, But, you know, in the corporate space as well as the philanthropy space, unfortunately, um, the entrepreneurship (laughs) sort of gene uh, is is a little lost uh, when it comes to all the corporate processes. So it took us a little longer than expected, unfortunately. But um, now that we have it, it's going to be off to the races. What would you like to be able to say about the Andrews Family Fund 20 years from now? I'd love to say that, in a weird way, I'd love to say that we had some big losses. And what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is I feel like I really want to live our value of innovation. And you can't, everything can't be a home run. Um, So I think, you know, a lot of people who sit here might say, well, I'd love to see the Andrews Family Fund have all these successes and all these amazing grantees but I kind of want some I want some losses on the books because that means that we took we took some chances and we went outside our comfort zone and you know you can't have the rainbow without the rain so I'd like (laughs) to see I'd like to see some losses on the books I think we're in a really exciting time right now politically there's a lot Mm. of stuff in the landscape um that is you know 
slowly but surely kind of turning the tide. I think we're at a really interesting point. Um, again, speaking to my personal life in entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship in the last three years has really taken off um, with all sorts of, again, sexy brand names like Tom Shoes and Listen Headphones and Warby Parker. Um I think that's really great to see that next generation of uh, entrepreneurs coming into the landscape, even knowing about that. I think 10 years ago, if you said social um, in any part of entrepreneurship, people would be like social media. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the social impact just wasn't even on people's radar. But again, you know, you mentioned things like Shark Tank. You have people going on Shark Tank saying, you know, for every lemonade that I sell, I'm going to donate 50 cents to XYZ charity. And I Mm -hmm. think that was never something that was in the landscape previously. I think it's becoming more and more a talking point now. So I think from the philanthropic endeavor, you also have people like Mark Zuckerberg pledging huge amounts of money um, mm-hmm. as part of the, I think it's 50-50 pledge. Yeah, 50 pledge. Warren Buffett's mm-hmm. um, pledge. You know, Sarah Blakely is on it as a mm-hmm. self-made uh, billionaire, as a woman before mm-hmm. the age of 45. I just think it's becoming more of a norm um, and I think that in the next 20 years, I'm really excited to see to see what that does. And so not only the Andrews Family Fund, but the mm-hmm. overall mm-hmm. landscape of of this space. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Um, it's exciting to think about, right? That mm-hmm. that that the social entrepreneurship is is at its infancy, totally. and there's already some pretty innovative ideas out there. And so as it becomes part of our regular lexicon right as we understand it and know it and see it more often like what are the ideas that can um that can be born right over the next 20 years I think it's it's super exciting well and that that thing you know I always tell people there's there's entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship which is entrepreneurship is I'm going to go start my own company and you know give it a name and have employees and entrepreneurship is I'm working at a corporation but I'm going to rethink that space or I'm Mm. going to rethink that team so entrepreneurship is something that anybody can do and I think again going back to the social entrepreneurship being such a craze right now um you know, again, that Adam Foss TED Talk, you know, that entrepreneurship of, yes, I'm a prosecutor. Yes, I have to do this job. I have to do it from nine to five. I have to make a salary. But can I innovate within it? And what are the decisions that I'm making? And, and again, that end user, what is happening with that end user? So I think the space for entrepreneurship, um, that sort of internal questioning of can I shake things up? Can I do things differently? Um, I'm really excited to see, you know, in the next 20 years, what sort of um, little bubbles that come out of that that yeah. movement. That's so. So I have to say, I didn't know that term, entrepreneurship. Mm, yeah. So I'm excited to have a new word and idea to yeah. add to my thinking. But it, it it's made me think a little bit about how do you innovate within philanthropy, right? Mm. Because you know. The philanthropic sector, you know, I always say it can, we're, we're a fickle space and, are, and can oftentimes be confined by strategies and rules that sometimes don't make that much sense to the external world. So this idea of how do we innovate within it um, is super important. And I think it's some of what we've tried to do at AFF, right, to think about, like, how can we be nimble? How can we're a small funder? and yet funnel across the country. Like, how does that happen? Like, how do we provide money quickly to folks on the ground? 
Um, but it'll be really interesting now that I have a language for it, actually. Yeah. How do we apply that, right, to our thinking all the time? And and part of it is that we listen to everything that you've said, right? The end user knows best. We collaborate because we're small and the problems that we're trying to address are so big that we need to be able to have friends uh, and colleagues and idea folks um, to help us think. Um we believe in sustaining. I think to your um, stuff you were saying earlier, you can't you can't set it and forget it, right? So how do we become partners in community? And we engage, right? We're hoping to really engage again ideas and people um, in in social change. We're oftentimes working with young people or or working with organizations that work with young people that like actually don't have a set idea of home or home can be a painful place or they've been taken out of their homes uh, oftentimes in really unjust ways so when you think about home you know what does that mean to you and that could be a person place or thing yeah I think for me home is definitely definitely um people related mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to a place. Although I love my home and my <laughs> apartment. Uh, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's definitely, you know, for me, I can only speak from my point of view in terms of like, I am an only child. Um, so I spent a lot of time growing up with my parents. So for me, it's definitely more people oriented feeling like I'm around whether it's family or friends and feeling like I'm in a safe space. So definitely people related. Thank you. Thank you for that. For, you know, it's interesting because for me, it's both people and space. I um, I grew up in, in a fairly crowded and, and chaotic space. And so, like like you, I love my apartment and I love... Oh, I love my apartment. Yeah. Like, I love the quiet and the, and the space of it all. Um, but then I oftentimes think of, like, people, right? Like... And, and sometimes animals, too. So, everyone, we've been talking to Kim Kaup, who is um, board chair of the Andrus Family Fund and runs uh, a company called Zine Pack. Um, you can find her online, and you can follow her. Her Twitter handle is... It's at Kim Kaup. So, it's K-I-M, and the last name is K-A-U's and Unicorn, P's and Peter, E's and Elephant. Yeah, so follow her and... A lot of her interesting interviews musings. and, you know, musings <laughs> um, about the work. But also she is an incredible leader um, at the Andrews Family Fund and has helped us really move the work forward over the past few years and really, really grateful for that. So um, I've been ending our interviews with quotes. And so I'm going to end one uh, today with one that you've heard, that you've read before that I put into our board books because uh, we've been talking about philanthropy and we've been talking about social change and it's by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he said to us, um, philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice, which make philanthropy necessary. And so I think that's what we've been talking about today is both how do we engage in philanthropic practice and praxis but also not forget, right, the root causes that, that make us all look at the world in a particular way. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Out of the Margins is the team here at the Andrus Family Fund and our great folks at Soul Design who help us edit and put music to this SOL design based out of Atlanta. I also wanted to give a special thank you to AFF team member, 
and musician Manuela Arciniegas and the wonderfully talented sisters of Legacy Women, whose music you hear on this podcast. Please look them up on Facebook. Again, they are called The Legacy Women. So follow us on Twitter at Andrus Fam Fund and follow me if you'd like at Letty Piguero. Thank you so much, y'all. I look forward to sharing more with you soon. Oh,